how old were you in the first time? I think you said that your parents were the ones who first suggested that you try. I was my mom. Snorting a pill? Yeah, I think I was like 16, I believe, or 17. She just offered me a, a line. Were you nervous about that? Did you like yeah. do it twice before doing it? Kind of, but like it was just so, I felt hopeless. And it was like, I remember thinking, well, if I can't beat him, I might as well join him. Shannon is a member of the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. She was raised on the reservation. Also, Shannon isn't her real name. There are some sensitive parts of her story, so we agreed to protect her privacy. Did you get high the first time you did it? Yeah. I got a little bit sick. <laughs> but yeah, I got it. I understood why, you know, there was a quick escape. She's a mom herself now, raising five kids, including a baby that crawled on her lap during our interview. Shannon also talked about the bright spots in her childhood. She spent summer afternoons swimming with friends, and during the winter, she'd hole up inside and practice her saxophone. But alcoholism was a big problem in the community. Both her parents were heavy drinkers. Then, in the late 90s and early 2000s, prescription opioids started flooding the reservation, and people started using them recreationally. Just to probably escape or whatever, distract. What did your parents do? They were college-educated and stuff, but there was always just that probably undealt with pain that they lived with their whole life. And yeah, it just kind of spilled over onto me and my sister and my brother and um, just continued on. By the time Shannon was a teenager, her mom and dad were addicted to prescription painkillers. Eventually, they started using fentanyl. That same pattern was happening all over the U.S. There was this local pharmacist. They called him the Candyman and my mom convinced one of her friends to go in and she got the pills that my mom wanted and my mom was getting the pills that she wanted so they'd both go in and then they'd switch. But it wasn't just the candy man. Did you ever go to a doctor who said, no, I'm not gonna give you pills? Oh yeah, all the time, so we'd just go find another one. I'm Keegan Hamilton, and this is Painkiller, America's Fentanyl Crisis. Episode six, this isn't a game. So we just passed the sign that said, uh, welcome to the Standing Rock Sioux Indian Reservation. It's actually the prettiest part of North Dakota we've seen so far. We've got some rolling sort of grassland hills. The Missouri River is off to our left. Uh, we've got some blue skies and uh, the sun is coming up. Uh, it's very picturesque. Lots of bales of hay everywhere. Uh -huh. See some cows here and there, trailers. The Standing Rock Sioux Reservation straddles the border between North and South Dakota, an area bigger than the entire state of Delaware. My producer Jesse and I visited Standing Rock last fall. There are at least three bulldozers that are actually bulldozing the land. Back in 2016, Standing Rock was in the news a lot 
when the tribe was fighting to keep an oil pipeline from being built across the land. But at the same time those protests were happening at Standing Rock, there was another pipeline causing major problems on the reservation, a pill pipeline. From 2006 to 2014, Opioid prescriptions per capita doubled at Standing Rock. Opioid overdoses are responsible for nearly 50,000 deaths per year in the United States, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found Native Americans have suffered the largest increase in overdose deaths. In other indigenous communities, prescriptions per capita tripled or even quadrupled. And this wasn't just happening on reservations. Opioid use was spiking all over the country. We wanted to find out where these pills were coming from the impact it had on people like Shannon, and how it fit into the bigger story of fentanyl. In our last episode, we talked a bit about Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family, the people behind OxyContin. Some patients may be afraid of taking opioids because they're perceived as too strong or addictive, but that is far from actual fact. Purdue and the Sacklers have been accused of misleading the public about the dangers of opioid addiction. In response, Purdue says that they make, quote, a very small fraction of opioids nationally, which is true if you only look at volume, how many total pills they sell. But according to a report by ProPublica, if you look at potency, meaning how powerful each pill is, they were the third largest seller of opioids in the U.S. during the height of the crisis. In other words, they were selling a lot of the strongest pills. Either way, Purdue is just one part of the equation. Because the company is an opioid manufacturer. They just make and market the drugs. To understand how so many pills ended up getting shipped to Standing Rock, you have to look at opioid distributors. It's 11.15 a.m. on a Tuesday. In the next minute, McKesson will make better health possible for millions of people at the same time. The McKesson Corporation is the biggest opioid distributor in the country. Their job is to make sure pain pills and other medications get from the manufacturer to your local pharmacy. And McKesson isn't just some obscure little company. They generated $208 billion in 2018, more than big names like AT&T, Chevron, and Ford. McKesson trading at its highest level in more than a year. And Joe, I think the next stop is 178. That's a 2017 high. Stay with it. I had a pretty strong suspicion that McKesson was supplying pills to Standing Rock. But for a long time, data on pill shipments to Indian reservations wasn't publicly available. Then I found a source. That source provided records that show McKesson supplied nearly half of the pain pills shipped to counties on or near Standing Rock. But it's bigger than just this one reservation. McKesson supplied nearly 80% of the opioids shipped to Indian Health Services facilities. Those are the government-run hospitals and pharmacies on Indian reservations around the country. Basically, McKesson was the company that controlled the spigot on the pill pipeline. Now, the tribes are fighting back, and they aren't alone. More than 130 tribes have filed lawsuits against McKesson and other opioid manufacturers and distributors. Altogether, more than 2,000 similar lawsuits have been filed by cities, counties, states, and other entities across the U.S. The Orlando City Council is voting to join with those other governments here in Florida and all over the U.S. to sue drug makers. Somerville joins the city of North Charleston, the city of Charleston, Mount Pleasant, and Charleston County in this type of lawsuit. 
Just by the sheer number of cases, it's the biggest class action lawsuit of all time, even bigger than the lawsuits against tobacco companies in the 90s. And there's a lot of money at stake, potentially billions of dollars worth of settlements. Many of the lawsuits claim that McKesson is directly responsible for a lot of the problems on reservations today. Problems that affected people like Shannon. Even when Shannon moved out of her parents' house, things didn't really change. Her dad would show up at her place and ask her to inject him with fentanyl. He would come and sometimes he would um, pass out with like needles hanging on his arm because he would start using fentanyl. I remember one time he wasn't able to find his veins, so he asked me to help him and he was sick. And he was like begging me to help, you know, please help me, I'm sick, I, I need this and whatever, so I, I did. Do you feel like they came to you because you were good at it? Like you, yeah. Oh, you know. they told me all the time that I should have been a phlebotomist and, you know, stuff like that. And, yeah. Yeah. My mom told me I was an adult and you're going to make your own choices anyway. Because we've gotten into fights and stuff where I'd say stuff to her like, well, you got me, you made me this way. Shannon fell deeper into addiction, too. There was periods where, because I have daughters, like where I'd get pregnant and I'd try to stop. I'd always try to stop, but I was trying to do it by myself, so it, it never worked. Were there resources that were available to you? Like, you said you wanted to stop. No, definitely nowhere on Standing Rock, because there's nowhere that exists yet still there, so I don't know. In 2015, Shannon's life started to fall apart. She and her partner at the time got into a high-speed chase with police while one of Shannon's daughters was in the car with them. Shannon was arrested. She managed to keep her kids, but a little while later, she got in trouble again, and this time was found guilty of child neglect. She got two years and ended up serving eight months in prison. While she was away, her two youngest kids were placed in foster care. Those eight months she was locked up, Shannon thought about just one thing. Like it was my kids. I feel like that's my one purpose here on earth is my kids. And then to just continuously fail them like that and then to tell people that they're better off not in my care, I think something switched. Finally, you know, like, geez. <laughs> like this isn't a game, you know. Yeah. Cases like Shannon's are exactly why the Standing Rock Sioux brought their lawsuit against McKesson and the other opioid companies. Part of their argument is that if opioids hadn't been so easily available, tribal members like Shannon wouldn't have ended up in prison with their kids in foster care. The lawsuit says, quote, the tribe has seen child welfare and foster care costs associated with opioid addicted parents skyrocket. Health services have been overwhelmed and almost every tribal member has been affected, end quote. It's a tragic echo of the past that so many children are being taken from their homes at Standing Rock, a 
100 years ago, it was the federal government forcing Native American parents to give up their kids who were shipped off to distant boarding schools to be, quote, civilized. Today, it's Child Protective Services taking kids away from parents on opioids. In 2012, the number of kids in foster homes across the U.S. started to go up. This was right as illicit use of painkillers peaked around the country. A national epidemic of pill popping so bad, it's being called Farmageddon. Deaths from accidental drug overdoses have increased fivefold. Nowadays, kids are spending more time in foster care, and there are fewer homes to put them into. Foster care systems are being overwhelmed all over the country, but especially in Native American communities like Standing Rock. Three o'clock in the morning, the cops came to my house. Darlene Martinez Chasing Hawk is a grandmother and foster mom who lives on the Standing Rock Reservation. A couple years ago, local authorities showed up at her door in the middle of the night. They had two children with them. Brought a sister and a little baby. And at the time, the baby was um, between seven and nine months old. She was still in Pampers. Um, she still used the bottle. Darlene took in both kids. Pretty soon, she noticed the baby was having trouble breathing. It scared me, and then she'll be up all night. And then when it's daylight, she's sleeping all day. So finally I questioned it. Authorities told Darlene that the baby had neonatal abstinence syndrome, which means it was exposed to opioids or other drugs in the womb. How many kids have you fostered total over the years, would you say? Um, Twelve altogether, twelve. Of those twelve... How many ended up in in your care because their biological parents had problems with opioids or other drugs? Um, pretty much all of them. Darlene is the kind of person you don't hear a lot about in this opioid crisis. She's not a user or a dealer. She's someone struggling with the fallout. She's experienced it in other ways, too. A while back, her husband had cancer and had been prescribed fentanyl for the pain. And word had gotten out someone actually broke down her front door trying to get into her medicine cabinet. Darlene invited us to her home. It's government housing on the reservation. There are three bedrooms, but 21 people live here. We have air mattresses that we put on the floor, and that's what we lay on. But the little ones all lay in a bed. sleep on an air mattress right here? Um, Yeah, my daughter, well, I do, and then she sleeps here with her air mattress. Darlene's place is falling apart. She gives us a tour, pointing at holes in the walls and water dripping from leaky pipes in the ceiling. She says CPS is still asking her to take in more foster kids, but at this point, it's getting so crowded she has to turn them away. The problems at Standing Rock are bigger than just opioids. Alcohol and meth are everywhere. There are very few jobs. It's in an isolated place. And of course, there's the entire legacy of colonization to grapple with. But the tribe believes companies like McKesson made matters much worse. Shipping all those pills to the reservation was like pouring gas on a fire. 
A couple years ago, executives from McKesson and four other pharma distributors testified before Congress about the role they played in spreading so many pills across the country. Do you believe that the actions that you or your company took contributed to the opioid epidemic? McKesson's CEO at the time had a simple response. Mr. Hammergren. Uh, no. Of the five pharma distributor CEOs testifying, only one took any responsibility. And that prompted this response from Congressman David McKinley, who represents West Virginia. I am so frustrated for the people in West Virginia and across this country that you all have not played and stepped up and took more responsibility for this. I I just want you to feel shame about your roles, respectively, in all of this. When it comes to shipping pills to Standing Rock, McKesson's defense is that they were just fulfilling orders placed by the U.S. government, which uses them to supply drugs to hospitals and pharmacies on Indian reservations. A company spokesman told us they didn't have the, quote, discretion to reject orders or second-guess the medical needs of federal facilities. In a recent case where the Cherokee Nation sued McKesson over opioids, a federal judge said something similar, that the company, quote, could not unilaterally choose to not fill a government order. And you definitely can't blame everything on McKesson. Last year, federal inspectors found that some Indian Health Services facilities weren't doing enough to figure out when patients were filling too many prescriptions. And when inspectors visited the IHS hospital at Standing Rock, they found the opioid supply being stored in an area that was unlocked. IHS says it has since fixed those issues. Obviously, they were beyond McKesson's control. Still, McKesson is legally required to closely monitor painkiller shipments and flag suspicious orders to the DEA. And according to a DEA whistleblower, that almost never happened. The whistleblower went on 60 Minutes and talked about McKesson and other opioid distributors. You know the implication of what you're saying, that these big companies knew that they were pumping drugs into American communities that were killing people. That's not an implication, that's a fact. That's exactly what they did. In response to the whistleblower, a representative from McKesson told 60 Minutes that, quote, the problem is not distributors, but doctors who overprescribe pain medication. The allegation is that McKesson wanted to keep the pill pipeline flowing no matter what. But something else was going on too. Federal data shows that all over the country, opioid prescriptions became easier to get starting around 2006 and peaking in 2012. 76 billion opioid pills flooding into medicine cabinets between 2006 and 2012. Pharmaceutical companies are raking in hundreds of millions of dollars. Prescription rates across the country exploded. And that had nothing to do with McKesson. That was on doctors. I prescribed opioids. Uh, I had the best of intentions. It didn't feel wrong. Dr. David Taubin works at the University of Washington at the school's famous pain clinic that we visited in the last episode. He says that back in the early 2000s, after pain became known as the fifth vital sign, doctors in the U.S. were under a lot of pressure to make pain go away at almost any cost. I'm encouraged to chase this fifth vital sign. I can't do anything else. And opioid pills were an easy solution. Uh, And there they were, uh, the lure of the opioids because you could give those out. The visit can be concluded so you can move to your next patient. 
uh, and then they were heavily marketed. Purdue Pharma revolutionized the marketing of painkillers directly to doctors, but others followed their lead, including fentanyl companies. The label talking, man, we not up for discussion. We'll arrange to get a speaker you can meet with over supper. We can come into your office. We can go and bring some lunch. And while your staff is getting fair, we can start discussing substance. This song was produced by a company called Insys, which makes fentanyl that comes in a little spray bottle. Insys made the song to inspire their sales reps. The rapper brags about taking doctors out for meals, catering lunches for office staff, basically whining and dining them. Years later, it came out that the company was actually bribing doctors to prescribe fentanyl to people who didn't really need it. The highest-ranking pharmaceutical executive to be convicted in the opioid crisis was sentenced to five and a half years in prison. Prosecutors say John Kapoor orchestrated a bribery and kickback scheme to get doctors to prescribe his company's painkiller. I obtained a deposition with the former CEO of Insys, who said the company knew they were supplying pill mills with fentanyl. He testified under oath that distributors like McKesson never raised any alarms about large drug shipments, even though they had access to real-time data. The CEO called the pill mill doctors whales, their biggest clients. Dr. Taubin stopped prescribing opioids so heavily 15 years ago when he started seeing people getting addicted and dying of overdoses. I said, I'm going to have to change what I'm doing uh, because I'm seeing it in my own practice and uh, above all, do no harm is still the motto. The fallout from that time period is still visible at places like Standing Rock and in the fentanyl epidemic writ large because all over the country, a lot of people who first got addicted to prescription painkillers later moved on to street drugs and then illicit fentanyl, either mixed into heroin or on its own. Today, Native Americans have overdose death rates 40% higher than the national average. That's why so many reservations are suing McKesson and these other companies. The Standing Rock Sioux have some treatment options on the reservation, but there's no dedicated rehab facility. The hope is that settlement money will be able to undo some of the damage that has already been done. But even if they win the case, there are already signs that Standing Rock and other plaintiffs might not get as much money as they're hoping for. Purdue Pharma filed for bankruptcy in New York late Sunday, succumbing to pressure from more than 2,000 lawsuits. Purdue's bankruptcy was part of a multi-billion dollar settlement the company made with several U.S. states to pay for their role in the opioid crisis. The company continues to deny the allegations in the lawsuits. The huge settlement hasn't really hurt the Sackler family. Covered at least a billion dollars in U.S. wire transfers from the Sackler family. Big money sent to overseas accounts, some in Switzerland. They've made a fortune off of opioids and have allegedly hidden a lot of it. The attorney general claims the family is trying to hide assets as it faces thousands of lawsuits. Several states have sued the Sacklers directly, claiming the family withdrew upwards of $4 billion from Purdue. According to an Associated Press investigation, a lot of it is hidden in offshore bank accounts. The states say that money could be used for compensation. The Sacklers have responded to these allegations by saying that the wire transfers were, quote, perfectly legal and appropriate in every respect. Other companies are settling for millions, not billions of dollars. McKesson has settled a few cases, but for relatively little money. The first settlement came last October, 
it's over. These four defendants reached a settlement with just these two counties. Hours before going to trial in a suit brought by two Ohio counties. $250 million in cash from the three big distributors, McKesson, Amerisource Bergen, and Cardinal Health. McKesson also agreed to pay West Virginia, one of the states hit hardest by the opioid crisis, $37 million. That's almost nothing for a company that grossed $208 billion in 2018. And McKesson doesn't just ship opioids. They're responsible for a third of all prescription medicine shipped in North America. They also handle a lot of the medical supplies that hospitals need to operate. the incident where she lost custody of her kids, Shannon was released from prison in 2017. Take me back to that, that day when you got home and your kids were there. What was that like? I was happy. I was crying, hugging them and stuff, but they were a little reserved. You know, like, how long is she going to be sober this time? Like, <laughs> how did you convince them that this time it was going to last? Um, I'm not sure that I have. Shannon sounds wary when talking about her recovery. But when we visited her house, she seemed happy and committed to being a good mom. Do you want your snack? You want your snack? She's always so starving. What do you want? Oatmeal. Oatmeal? Since we visited Shannon last year, the coronavirus has hit Standing Rock. She lives off the reservation in Bismarck, but it's been a tough time for her. She's still dealing with trauma, and she recently relapsed on drugs. Now she's working to get help and get her life back together. As for Darlene, she now has 14 people under her roof with seven foster children. And things are still tough. Because of coronavirus, the tribe's casino had to lay off a bunch of workers, which put her granddaughter out of a job. Darlene says she and her kids are having an even harder time getting by than before. The same thing is happening at reservations across the country. Casinos and other tourist attractions are shut down, crushing their local economies and poor healthcare services on reservations are making the outbreak worse. In late May, the Navajo Nation had the highest per capita infection rate of COVID-19 in the U.S. While money from opioid lawsuits could provide some much needed help for tribes during the pandemic, there's no guarantee that money will ever come. But one thing is certain, even if these tribes and other communities get big payouts, the opioid crisis is not going to be solved by money alone. It's bigger than that now and it's going to require different solutions. That's next time. On the next episode of Painkiller, we bring you a story from the early 1970s when a group of activists in the South Bronx took on another opioid epidemic and took over a hospital. I called Cleo. I'll never forget this. It was November 9th. 1970, and I told her, Cleo, I'm going to shoot my last bag of dope, and I'm going to stop. When I, I, I got to the hospital, the hospital was pretty much surrounded by police. They heard about it through the community, you know, they heard it through the grapevine. I made my way inside, and I told Cleo, I'm here, and she says, are you ready? I said, yes. Pain 
Killer, America's Fentanyl Crisis is a Spotify original production in partnership with Vice News. It's hosted and reported by me, Keegan Hamilton. From Vice News, Jesse Alejandro Cottrell is our producer. Editing by Annie Avilis. Sound design and original scoring by Steve Bone with help from Pran Bandy. Kate Osborne and Annie Avilis are our executive producers. From Spotify, executive producers are Liz Gately and Erica Clark. Supervising producer is Jake Kleinberg. Associate producer is Baron Farmer. Additional reporting on this episode by Rob Arthur. Tape sync by Nicole Gotteland. A huge thanks to Tim Purden. Thanks to Roxanne Tubles and to the Standing Rock Tribe, including Margaret Gates, Brandy Knife, Shauna Long, Tammy Birdhorse, Tasha Peltier, and especially Phyllis Young and the Lakota Law Project. To read more about McKesson and their role supplying opioids to Native American communities, visit our website, painkiller.vice.com. If you're struggling with drug addiction and want to get help, call SAMHSA's National Helpline, 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357 or visit findtreatment.gov.